along in our sermon series. We reach now chapter 5, and we're going to read the first eight verses, just Esther 5, 1 through 8. We pick up where we left, and we will continue to the end of summer. We're more than halfway through in terms of sermons, even though not in terms of chapters, but we will get there. Esther 5, 1 through 8, receive this with faith and with love, for this is the word of God to you. Thus says the Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite to the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So, the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. When one is drowning, any alligator is a log. Thus goes the old Brazilian saying. I usually heard it from my mother growing up when we did not have a lot of resources and had to make do with whatever came at hand. When one is drowning, any alligator is a log. It conveys this idea that when the situation is dire, even a bad way out is still a bad way out. Sure, if we take it literally, if you are drowning and the only thing your flailing arms can reach is the tail of an alligator, you might not live to tell the story. But it's worth a shot, isn't it? This old folk motherly saying came to my mind as I prepared the sermon because it pictures the circumstances we find ourselves halfway through the book of Esther. An irrevocable law has, was passed saying that all the Jews in the Persian Empire will be annihilated. 
the Persian queen, so close to the king, Esther, however, was, to their knowledge, an undercover Jew. While she was Queen Esther of the Persians in public, she was also Hadassah, the Myrtle Three, to her family at home. Last week, we saw a couple weeks ago, when confronted by her uncle Mordecai, Esther faced a difficult choice. Will she risk her place in the palace, her office as a queen, and maybe even her own life to go to the king and plead for the people that so far she has not identified with? Well, in a certain way, when you look at it, they will all die anyway. It was one of Mordecai's arguments, actually, to Esther. They were all going to drown. If going to the king unannounced was as dangerous as grabbing an alligator by the tail, they might as well reach for it. They don't have another choice, as far as they know. What about us? Do we have a better choice in our lives? In the best case scenario, I believe that most of us will feel like we are drowning in life's turmoil only once in a while. Because the harsh reality of life on this side of eternity is that most of us will feel like that daily. We have all gone through our lives feeling at the bottom of a never-ending pile of bills, troubles, illnesses, and all kinds of suffering of varying degrees of annoyance from hitting your pinky on the corner of a table to seeing your family disintegrate before your eyes and you're helpless to do anything about it. What hope do we have against this seemingly cosmic conspiracy to ruin your own life? What resources do we have when everything is against us and we are powerless or even maybe just too tired to resist? What are our chances against the edicts of destruction arriving at the mailbox issued by the empires of sin, hell, and death against us, one after the other, a pile bigger than any pile of mail, junk, junk mail that arrives in our boxes every week. Today, we will see how a young woman living at the heart of the empire, after her unexpected conversion experience, so to speak, last sermon, and emboldened by that experience, can point us today to the way to the life, and to the truth. Today, I'm glad to announce to all of you, we will hear the gospel according to Esther, how the Myrtle Tree Girl will show us forth our Savior, our only Savior, Jesus Christ. In summary, Esther 5, 1 through 8 teaches simply that the resurrected and ascended Jesus is our only hope 
against the threats of the empire. Again, this is the main thing you have to take out from this text this morning. The resurrected and ascended Jesus is our only hope against the threats of the empire, against our lives. We'll see that in two points this morning. First, in Jesus' resurrection, we find life. In Jesus' resurrection, we find life. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. To give us some context, one fascinating archaeological piece dug from Persepolis, another Persian capital city like Susa, depicts the court of the Persian emperor. In that picture, you see etched in stone before the king, probably Darius, Ahasuerus' father. His attendants are all bowing before him. The only people standing are two guys behind him. Two guardian soldiers standing, axe in hand. To us, that is a piece of archaeological trivia. To Esther, that's what she sees at the beginning of our text. When she stands at the entrance of the the king's inner court, she sees him and behind him two guys with axes on their hands, waiting to strike whoever is not allowed to come at the presence of the emperor. And it is no wonder that she was afraid to go before him at first, as we saw last time. But now it has been three days since Esther, her attendants, and all the Jews in Susa that Mordecai could find are fasting, and as we hope, even though it's not said in the text, praying. It's ironic that after Vashti was banned for refusing to appear the king before the king when she was summoned, now Esther risks everything she has, even her life, to appear unsummoned before Ahasuerus and his axe-holding guards. So rather than a year of beauty products and cosmetic preparations as she did for the first time, she goes now before him, with the face of someone who has not eaten for three days. Probably not a very beautiful face. Yet, she also appeals to her authority. The text emphasizes that she comes up with her royal robes. This is just not your wife visiting you at work. This is a serious transaction about to happen. In no other place of the book, her double nature upbringing is so evident. You see here Hadassah, the Jewish girl who fasted. And there goes Esther, the queen of the Persians. And that's that complex and complicated person that Ahasuerus sees when he raises his head, looks at her, and we all hold our breaths. What will happen now? And this time, just before we move on, it's a good time to remind you that even if Esther had not, is not immediately struck by an axe for that single action, if she's there to plead for her people and she eventually reveals her true identity, she will fall under the law that permits any Persian citizen to kill and plunder any Jew in the empire 
at that date that is coming. Even if she's not that now, she will be soon if her plan follows through. So will the alligator bite the hand of drowning Astra? No, he won't. Ahasuerus extends the royal scepter to her, spares her life. And at this point, we should all breathe a corporate sigh of relief. Phew, that was close. The threat of immediate death is now removed. God save the queen. While the other half of the kingdom and Ahasuerus' offer is a mere common idiom to show generosity, clearly she has found, or rather she won, favor in the eyes of the king. I want you to notice the progression of the events that have been described before us since chapter 4. Esther decides to sacrifice herself for the sake of her people, identifying with them and with their suffering, even if she does not need to. Then she goes through three days of suffering and agony, probably emotional, spiritual, but certainly physical, given her fast. And as the gears start spinning on your head, before I move on, let me read something that might make you think more about what I'm trying to get at. Let me read to you a section of our call to worship this morning. It comes from Hosea chapter 6. It says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Do you see what's happening here? On the third day, the emperor who holds life and death in his hands and whose laws are irrevocable extends his favor to Esther allowing her into his presence without pain with her life. Esther comes in, touches the tip of the scepter, and the one we all thought was as good as dead now lives again. At this point, I hope that Esther, Ahasuerus, Mordecai, Persia, the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible, becomes almost as if transparent as you think about it. It becomes a lens through which you see the mercy and the grace of our God. Because when you look for the mercy and the grace of our God through the actions of these characters, you should see Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God, the friend of sinners, who entered the throne room of God with all his royal authority after his resurrection, after being dead for three days and saying to his father, it is finished. This, my friends, is the gospel according to Esther. The good news that God's 
that God extended the cross of Jesus Christ as a sign of grace and mercy and peace to the world. So those that reach out in response and accept this grace will not fall under the edict of eternal death. On Sunday, on the third day, Jesus found favor before the Father after a life of perfect obedience. On the third day, our Savior arose to imperishable eternal life, granting a safe path to God's presence to all who reach out in faith and touch the cross-shaped scepter. That, my sisters and my brothers, is the log of salvation for all who are drowning. You see, friends, what I have been trying to say for the past couple of months is that the book of Esther is not about Esther. It is about Jesus. And that being the case, you should remember that you, when you read this story, you are not Esther in the scene of chapter 5. You and me are the afraid Jew, awake at night, looking up to the sky and seeing only the citadel of Susa, awaiting for the day when they will come for you. And until someone pleads before the king on your behalf, you are hopeless and you are as good as dead. But thanks be to God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, who give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only after God transforms the hesitant Esther into the bold Esther does she actively participate in God's plan of salvation. As a commentator says, as a result of her decision to identify with God's people, she was personally transformed to the full dignity, courage, and power to be what she was, the queen of Persia. Like Esther, we too, must be transformed to leave behind our Persian lifestyles. We can blend in as much as we want and even think that if we obey the law of God, like obedience to the laws of the empire will get us somewhere, it won't. Laws by their very nature are powerless to transform our characters. To change someone from the inside is the work of the Holy Spirit alone who plants in those that reach out to the scepter the seeds of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control into the hearts of all who belong to Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for them and rose again to new life for them as well. Without the work of God's Spirit uniting us to Christ, and like He did with Esther, making us to look more like our Savior, we can never be the people that God created us to be. Bearing His image and His name 
in public, not hidden, and witness to the transformation that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. And this, friends, again, is the life we find in Christ and in the power of his resurrection, depicted to us here so clearly in the life of Esther. A life that honors God, a life that he uses to build up his church and expand his kingdom. But a question still remains, as good as those news are, and they are indeed. What is this new, renewed life good for if we are all going to die anyway? The edict of destruction is still out there. I am struggling out here. What hope is there for us who are in Christ? This will lead us to our final point this morning. In Jesus' ascension, we find love. In Jesus' ascension, we find love. And we see that depicted to us in verses 4 through 8. Because as you think about this, perhaps you realize that your sigh of relief was maybe a little bit premature. The Jews are still in danger. Remember, the laws of the Medes and the Persians are irrevocable. And it's not like Ahasuerus can just send his mailmen throughout the empire proclaiming in every province, sorry, sorry, my bad, nothing to see here. That cannot happen. That will not happen. I've read through the whole book. It will not happen. <laughs> and on top of that, if Haman's plans are somehow stopped, the king will see the potential tax, imperial tax revenue cut by 300 tons of silver. Will he be open to forgo that? And on top of that, will Esther tell Ahasuerus that she hid her true identity from him for the past five years? Esther right now must employ all her wisdom if she wants Ahasuerus to do something about all of that. And as I said in a previous sermon, you must remember, you must never forget that Esther, unlike us, had not read the book of Esther. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She has no Bible. She has no sign, no dream or vision telling her that everything will be fine. Then, instead of just saying that what she wanted right out there at the court, she invites the king and Haman, the one who was actually behind that edict of destruction, to a banquet at her quarters. That was something in these verses were brought to my attention by Dr. Ian Duguid in his commentary. He notices that in verse 5, the original reads, the king acted according to the word of Esther. So much for the earlier decree that each man should be the master in his own house, Dugit concludes. The reversals are only beginning, I promise you. And off they go. 
And there we find a hazardous drinking wine, again, as we usually do throughout the book. Maybe that's the best time, then, to exploit his well-known lack of judgment. His curiosity is picked up for sure, so he is the one who brings the issue up again. As slow to think as Ahasuerus is sometimes, still he probably recognized that Esther would not risk her own life just for the opportunity to host a dinner party. He knows there's something else more important going on. And then her wish is another banquet? What? Why? Why not strike while it's hot? Is she afraid? Oh, probably, but the text does not say that. So there has to be something more. So let's look close, closer at what's happening here. First, look at what Hazarus says in verse 6. What is it? Queen Esther, what is your request? It shall be given to you. In front of a reliable witness, Haman, the king promises her he will grant the request. Then, and only then, she comes back in verse 8 with, if it please the king to grant my wish, fulfill my request, and then she asks for a second date. If you look closely, read that again later. She's not saying that her big wish is to have two nights out in a row. She's saying that she, since he already promised he will give it to her, whatever she asks, she will say what she actually wants to ask if he comes the next day. And if it sounds confusing, it is a little bit. Brian Gregory was the commentator who finally made it clear to me a, a little bit to understand, understand the point of this passage, why this first and the second request. And he sums it up by saying this, just by showing up, the king will have already implicitly committed himself to grant whatever request Asher makes of him. Just the fact that she says, come, and he says, I will come, and I will give you a request before Haman, he's already making a promise to her. And with Haman there, like I said, as a witness, now she knows Ahasuerus will not take back the words he has said in front of his trusted right-hand man. He had too much pride to take it back. So she just keeping, keeps giving them him hope, rope, and he keeps being rolled around it, making promises and promises and promises without actually knowing what he's promising like he did already in the book. But as we have done before in the book, I want to draw your attention to the unspoken assumptions of what's happening here. Yes, Esther devised a very tight and well-thought-of plan to wrap Ahasuerus and Haman around her finger. Yet, there is more at play here. Think about it. Ahasuerus did not have to extend his scepter to her. And if he had not done it, she would be dead, and the book had, would be 
done by chapter five. He did not have to promise to do her bidding. He did not have to come to the banquet. He did not have to accept Haman as a third wheel to their date. He did not have to accept a request for a second banquet. All those are variables floating around. The plan is good. Yes, it is. But it's also as secure as a planet kept in its place by a camel on top of a kangaroo on top of an elephant. As we saw a couple weeks ago. Many, many things could have gone wrong. But they didn't. And once again, as it has happened in in this book before, Proverbs comes to the rescue. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And Persian kings are not exempt, Brian Gregory adds to that proverb. Behind all Esther's plan, plans and efforts is the invisible, silent, powerful, and good providence of God. Again, guiding all the events of this book. It was God, all along, who put her in a position for, for a time such as this. Now, not merely because she did the right thing, but because of God's love for his people, including Esther. She can go into the king's presence and ask whatever she wants. Now the, so to speak, resurrected royal Esther is free to intercede for the helpless Jews about to drown. And once again, do you see what's happening here? Once again, the book of Esther becomes a translucent prism through which we see the manifold grace of God reflecting the work of Jesus on our behalf and at this point, especially his work after his ascension. Now, in the presence of the Father after his ascension, he forever intercedes for the people he identified with. That's all of us in this room right now, if we have identified ourselves with him. Because of that, consequently, says the author of Hebrews, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Esther's plead for her people before Ahasuerus, we have a loving picture of Jesus interceding before a way better king than the Persian emperor. Because of Jesus, we don't have to go before God, wondering whether an axe will fall on our heads before we finish our prayers. We don't need airtight plans to wrap God around our fingers and leave him with no choice but to hear us while he drinks wine. That is not our reality. Take comfort in that this morning. No, friends, because of Jesus, because Jesus already fulfilled the irrevocable law of God. 
and carried away on himself the edict of destruction that was ours. Because all of that, we can approach the creator God of the universe as a child approaching their father. Our king, says Dr. Duguid, has an open door policy for his children. Once again, hear the words of the gospel according to Esther. For you, this morning, as you live your life right now, your king and your father, because of Jesus, has an open door policy to you. So remember that, Christians. Again, when tomorrow you feel like you're drowning, again, when you feel like being at the bottom of a never-ending pile of bills, troubles, illnesses, when all kinds of sufferings and pains threaten to drown you, when you open your email and there's a very long email with prayer requests about people who are struggling with their health, remember this. Remember what Jesus has accomplished for you in his resurrection, and what he does for you right now following his ascension. He gives you a new imperishable life. And he assures you right now of God's love for you when you need it the most. And you can just pray for it. You can just reach out to God and plead for him. Father, I'm drowning Save me. This is only possible because of what Jesus accomplished for us in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he's pleading for us before the Father right now. The book of Esther is about Jesus. And I want to conclude with a quote from the Puritan John Flavel, paraphrasing here a verse from Romans, but at the same time summarizing for us the book of Esther, the entire Bible, the good news of life, love, and salvation that we only find through Jesus. He says this, Surely, if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery. It can never be imagined that he would, after this, deny or withhold from his people. For those who sakes, for, those, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the second and new Adam. Perfect. Clothe us with yourself that we may put away all evil desires and lusts, 
crucify and slay the empire of sin in us. Be unto us a strong garment against the icy coldness of this world that we may be preserved and warmed by you. All around us, things droop, decay, and die without you. But in you, we live safe, strong, and mighty until you call us home. And as we now seek cover in your garments, O Lord, clothe us with yourself. For you are the garment of our salvation and the cloak of our righteousness. To you be glory, honor, and praise. And in your mighty name we pray. In your people together say, Amen.